All right, we begin the book of Lamentations this evening with matters of what are called introduction. This is a specialization of Old Testament studies, namely Old Testament introduction. I will attempt not to overwhelm you with it, but it is a way in which you approach the text by orientation. And it is a standard style of scholarship and also part of your uh, annotated Bibles, if you have a study Bible, what you're dealing with there in your notes at the beginning of a book of the Bible is a kind of Old Testament introduction material. So that's what we're going to look at <clears throat> this evening. <clears throat> but I also want to tell you about my personal orientation to the book. I have translated and worked on the book in the original Hebrew all summer. Uh, it's been a delight to me and to my own heart. This is an, a, a majestically amazing piece of Hebrew. And in English translation, it's an amazing piece of revelation. So uh, I'm approaching it in my own way. Uh, some of you have been with me and you know that my way is sometimes unique. And with respect to this book, it is unique. I am going to approach Lamentations as a narrative paradigm. Now, you will already understand the broad sense of what the narrative paradigm is. In other words, there is a story within this book. Can you tell me what it is? Anyone? It is the destruction of Jerusalem. That is the narrative tale. That is the narrative paradigm which is behind this book. And that's how I'm going to approach the volume. <clears throat> I'm going to approach these five chapters on the basis of an unfolding narrative paradigm or pattern. So <clears throat> that's the basic point of my approach. We'll also be dealing with the poetics of the Hebrew text. Uh, I'll be doing that in English for your sake, but nonetheless... I'm responsible to, to understand that with respect to the Hebrew original. And so I will bring to bear upon your understanding of your English versions what's behind the text in Hebrew. All right, well, let's begin with the titles of the book. <clears throat> the Hebrew title of the book is Akah. And that's from the first word, the first Hebrew word in the first verse of the book, and that Hebrew word akal means alas. It's translated in the New American Standard inaccurately. There it is. You've heard me say the New American Standard is inaccurate. <laughs> but it is the way that that word is translated in almost all the modern English versions. And so the New American Standard is in good sinful company. Oh, I'm being facetious there. <clears throat> The word ekka is stronger than how. It, it has a sense of woe to it. And, of course, that fits the tone of the book of Lamentations. So that word ekka should be better translated, alas, and I'll make comments upon that next time. But you'll notice that I placed the MT abbreviation beside ekka, which stands for the Masoretic Text. Now, the Masoretic text is the standard Hebrew version of the Old Testament. It came into its own about 1000 A.D., and it's the product of the Jewish scribal schools. 
which have accurately carried on the transmission of the Old Testament for centuries. And so this term, Ekah, is the label in the Masoretic text for the uh, Book of Lamentations. That's the title that it's given from the first word in that uh, book in Hebrew. Now, there's a variation in Hebrew tradition. There are Jewish circles which call this book Kinoth, which is the next word there. Now, I'll make a comment about that, but essentially that word means dirge, a funeral dirge, like a personal lament at a funeral service or a funeral procession. <clears throat> I'm going to comment a little bit later on that when we look at Second Chronicles 35. But the next title is Thranoi from the LXX. Uh, who knows what the LXX is? That is the Septuagint, correct. And what is the Septuagint? It is a Greek translation of what? It is the Greek translation of what? The Hebrew Old Testament. What is the Masoretic text or what has become the Masoretic text? All right, so it's called the Septuagint because of the legend that there were 70 Jewish scribes where? In Jerusalem? Not in Jerusalem. Where were they? They were in Egypt. Where in Egypt? They were in Alexandria, correct. They were in Alexandria, Egypt, and then they were asked by Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was the king of Egypt, one of the Ptolemaic dynasty. He wanted a copy of the Hebrew Bible in the language he could read or understand. And, of course, Alexander the Great had brought Greek to Egypt and to the Levant, and consequently Ptolemy could read Greek as well as hieroglyphics and Demotic and a few other languages which were current at that time. Well, this, the Septuagint title for the Book of Lamentations is Thranoi, which once again has the, the nuance of a lamentation for the dead. And that brings us to the Vulgate. And what is the Vulgate? It is a Catholic Bible, but what language is it in? It is in the Latin, yes. It is the Latin Bible. It's the, shall we say, the official version of the Bible for many Roman Catholics, but nonetheless they do have modern English translations as well. Now, Lamentationis is the title in Latin, from which you can see how we get the word lamentations for the book. And who is responsible for the Vulgate? Yes, Jerome, one of the early church fathers who died about 420 A.D. He, in fact, went to Jerusalem. He went to Palestine to learn how to translate into Latin from Hebrew. He didn't know Hebrew. He knew Greek. He knew Latin and Greek, but he didn't know Hebrew. And he wanted to make a better translation of the Hebrew Bible, actually the whole Bible, Greek and Hebrew, into Latin. And in order to do that, he had to learn Hebrew. So he went to Palestine and sat under the Jewish rabbis there who taught him Latin, who taught him Hebrew so that he could translate it into Latin. And in fact, he did a very good job of translating. All right. Now. Those are the terms and the origins of the terms for the title of the book. Thranoi has given us an English word. 
And that English word is threnody, which means an elegiac lamentation. Now, I'll bring up a couple of composers of classical music here, Thomas Tallis and Igor Stravinsky, because both of them have composed music uh, with respect to the Book of Lamentations. Thomas Tallis, whom you may know from Ray Fong Williams' Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis. If you do not know that piece of music, I'd suggest you go to the Internet and uh, dial it up because you can hear a version of it on a YouTube. It's beautiful. It's a lovely piece of music. Thomas Tallis was an Elizabethan composer. He lived uh, during the time of Queen Elizabeth and for the Church of England, which Elizabeth established uh, very uh, fervently. For the Church of England, he composed a series of Holy Week uh, choruses based upon the Book of Lamentations. Now, Rayfon Williams wasn't interested in those pieces that Tallis wrote, but he was interested in uh, <clears throat> Tallis's canon, so to speak, and he wrote a fantasia upon it, which, as I said, is extremely lovely. Igor Stravinsky, 20th century composer, most famous for what piece of music? Do you know? Firebird. The Firebird Suite, correct, <clears throat> which caused a riot when it was uh, released, originally performed. But nonetheless, it's the myth of the phoenix bird and put to music, and it's actually a very a stirring and exciting piece of music. But Stravinsky was a modern composer. He wrote a symphony called Thraney, as you can see there from your outline, and it is based upon the Book of Lamentations. Now, can you imagine what style Stravinsky wrote that uh, symphony and what, what, what kind of uh, music he, he used in that uh, composition? Not dirge. Minor key. Minor key, what else? General, a lot of dissonance. Extremely dissonance. strident. Extremely strident and clashing. It was it's dissonant. So uh, why did he do that? Because of the destruction of Jerusalem. He's trying to portray in music the death of the city, the death of the nation. It's not a pleasant piece to listen to. I remember buying a copy of it in the old vinyl days, and uh, I couldn't stand it. It was just too too noisy. Uh, I do like some of Stravinsky, but that one, no. uh, I I, I put that on the recycle shelf. (laughs) All right, so this book has had an impact on music. And on Christian hymnody, why do I say it's had an impact on Christian hymnody? Because of what hymn? Great is thy faithfulness. It is the only hymn in the Trinity hymnal that is based upon the book of Lamentations. So um, we realize that this book has had kind of trickle-down effect through uh, music and poetry and culture and imagery as well as the story of the history of Judah. Now, another word that we derive from the background or context of Lamentations is this English word plangency and plangent, which come from the Latin word plango, which means to bewail. Now, here we have the notion of sorrow or expression of lamentation with loud wailing. And if you know anything about Near Eastern funeral customs, 
there will be mourners who are hired to wail out loud. Well, that's the, that's the little uh, sense of this word plangency and plangent. It carries a kind of, uh, of cacophonous wailing about it. And finally, the word dolorous, which comes from the Latin dolorosus, which is, uh, in Latin, a translation of that word is sorrowful. This is a, uh, a book of sorrowful poems, lamentable, plangent, frenotic. There is a whole vocabulary in English that is derived from this book, <clears throat> some of it not familiar to us. Uh, for instance, you may have heard Threnody for the first time tonight in your life. Well, keep it in mind for the Scrabble game sometime when you, you need one of those uh, seven tile uh, words. <clears throat> uh, plangency, plangent, those are words you may not be familiar with, but you cannot make that excuse anymore. You've been educated about some vocabulary. Any questions about the titles and uh, what's derived from the titles? You're still with me, I hope. Very good. All right. Now, let's take a look at Second Chronicles chapter 35 for a moment. So if you'll turn to it, and whoever gets it first, read it out. Second Chronicles 35, 25, please. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah and their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. All right, now, uh, was that the NIV? Yes, it is. Okay, uh, now, the ESV, uh, it does not render the plural correctly there, the lament. It should be lamentations. And uh, what is written in the lamentations, according to that verse, may cause you to suspect that there was a collection of lamentations that is now the book of lamentations, the five chapters that are beside us or in front of us. Is that the case? No, it's not the case. But how do we know that the book of lamentations is not this collection of lamentations that Second Chronicles 35.25 is referring to? How does Denison know that what he's reading in Lamentations 1.1 through chapter 5.22 is not what Second Chronicles 25 or 35.25 is referring to? Chronicles was written first. No, in fact, it wasn't. Randy? Maybe the book of Lamentations is not about Josiah. That's exactly right. This Lamentations is associated with King Josiah, who was also a contemporary of Jeremiah, but not a contemporary of the destruction of Jerusalem. He died before Jerusalem was destroyed. What year did Josiah die? Six oh nine. Where did he die? At Megiddo. Who killed him? Pharaoh Nico. Why did Nico kill him at Megiddo? Because he joined forces with the enemy of Pharaoh. Because Josiah was trying to stop Nico from going where? 
to Assyria to join the remnant of Assyria against Nebuchadnezzar and his father Nabopolassar in the Babylonian Empire. All right, that story is in the Bible, but uh, I just remind you that Josiah is dead before the destruction of Jerusalem. So this lamentation that is referred to in Second Chronicles 35:25, the lamentation associated with the death of Josiah, and that is added to a collection of lamentations with about which the book of Lamentations has nothing to do. Josiah is never mentioned in the book of Lamentations. There is, in fact, only one perhaps veiled reference to a king of Judah, and that comes in chapter 5 with a possible reference to Zedekiah, possible reference to Zedekiah. We'll take a look at that when we get there. <clears throat> so this collection of Second Chronicles 35:25, which in the Hebrew is called Kinoth, and so you look up above, it is one of the Jewish titles for the book of Lamentations, Kinoth. But it is not referring to the same Kinoth collection that Second Chronicles 35.25 is using. Therefore, we cannot say that Second Chronicles is talking about the same book that we're studying in the canon, that is the canonical book of Lamentations. But we do see this term that the Jewish scribes used to describe lament and understand why they applied it to the book of Lamentations, which also is a kinoth, a lament. All right, now, position in the canon. That is, what place does the book occupy in canonical order, in the order of the books in the Old Testament? Now, in the Septuagint, Thranoi, or the Lamentations of Jeremiah, follows the book of Jeremiah, as it follows the book of Jeremiah in your English Bibles. And that Septuagint version, that Greek version, contains a superscription above the first verse of Lamentations 1.1 in the Septuagint, is the statement that after Israel was taken captive and Jerusalem made desolate, Jeremiah sat weeping this lamentation over Jerusalem. Right, now that is a tradition which the Jewish scribes in Alexandria, Egypt, between 250 B.C. and 100 B.C., that is a tradition which they attached to the top of their translation of the Hebrew book of Lamentations. Is that tradition inspired? Is that superscription inspired by the Holy Spirit? No, it is not. Nonetheless, it may represent reliable transmission of, uh, of the authorship of the book from Jeremiah himself on down, possibly, okay? Now, we can't say that definitively, but it is interesting to note that 300 years after this book was written, there is a Jewish tradition that it comes from the hand of Jeremiah himself. And they put that at the top of the first verse in the Septuagint. Well, along comes Jerome and his Vulgate translation. And who does he follow? He follows the Septuagint. 
he places Lamentations after Jeremiah, or he places Lamentations next to Jeremiah in his canonical order. And that will influence all the Western translations of the Old Testament. It will influence all those who are looking to the Vulgate as a pattern or a model of how to arrange the books of the Bible. But what do the Jewish people do? What is the Tanakh? Pam, what is the Tanakh? The New Testament. No, it is the Jewish Old Testament. Tanakh. Torah, Nebi'im, Ketubim. The three position, the three parts of the canon in the Hebrew language. So if you ask a Jewish person, you know, where's your Bible? They won't say, I don't have a Bible. I have a Tanakh. Okay? And they take the name from T-N-K, or C-H, which are the three parts. The Torah, which are the five books of Moses. The Nebi'im, which are the earlier and later prophets. Nebi'im means prophets in Hebrew. And the Ketubim. Ketubim, C-H, or K, which means the writings, which would include Psalms, Proverbs, etc. All right, so the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Old Testament, places the five Megiloth, as they call them. Okay, now, Megiloth means minor scrolls. <clears throat> they place these five books together. Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. They call them the Megiloth, the five scrolls. <clears throat> now, the, the order of these five varies <clears throat> in Jewish sources. So there's no standard pattern for what order they have, but they're all kept together. So, where are they kept in the Masoretic text? That is, if we have a Hebrew Bible, and the standard Hebrew Bible is Kittel's Biblia Hebraica, or the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, so-called, because it's the most modern, up-to-date version of the Hebrew Old Testament, and it was produced by scholars in Stuttgart, Germany, and is the standard critical edition of the Old Testament in our time. Where do they place the Megillot? They place them among the Ketubim, which includes Psalms, Proverbs, Job, etc. And here they have the order that is listed there under number four. <clears throat> Ruth is first in the Hebrew Bible amongst the Megillot. It comes after Proverbs in the Hebrew Bible. Song of Solomon is after Ruth, Ecclesiastes next, Lamentations, and Esther is last. <clears throat> now you may say this is an arbitrary order. It is not. You will notice that there is a logic to it. There is a logic to how this order is arrived chronologically. How so? Let's begin with Ruth. Why is Ruth first? because she is the ancestral mother of King Solomon. Why is the Song of Solomon next? Because that is the voice of the young King Solomon, the vitally in love King Solomon. What comes next? Ecclesiastes, because that is the voice of the old and wiser and more mature King Solomon, including all of his exposure to vanity. That leaves Lamentations <clears throat> after Ecclesiastes because that's the end of the Solomonic Temple. 
That's the end of the monarchy which Solomon's great kingdom represented. So Lamentations comes last in that order of the Solomonic paradigm, and Esther concludes it because that's the last book of the Jewish diaspora. It's the only book of the Jewish diaspora in the Bible, but it's the last book of the diaspora, namely the exile to Babylon and beyond, namely Persia, which is a ratification of Judaism without king and without temple. The diaspora puts a staccato exclamation point upon that paradigm, that historical paradigm. No king since Zedekiah, no temple since the destruction of Solomon's temple, even what Herod rebuilt was only rebuilt on the foundation of what was there uh, left behind by Solomon when they came back under Haggai and Zechariah. All right, so, yes, Randy. When did Esther live? Esther is about 400 B.C., about 480. What does diaspora mean again? It means the scattering of the Jews. So not only Assyria, but Babylon and Persia, and, of course, Persia, ancient Persia is modern-day Iran. All right, now... The Megiloth have a liturgical purpose in the Jewish synagogue. So let's think about that for a moment. They are read at certain times of the year. Those of you who may have had previous experience in Roman Catholicism, you know that there are liturgical portions of the year. Certain things are read, certain things are done in the Roman Catholic communion at particular times of the year, particularly during Lent and Holy Week. Right, well, there's a liturgical calendar in the Jewish synagogue. So let's begin with the Song of Solomon. <clears throat> the Song of Solomon is read <clears throat> during Passover. Now, it may seem strange that they would read <clears throat> this magnificent love poem uh, <clears throat> during Passover season. And yet, Passover is celebrated in the spring. And the Song of Solomon is a celebration of the springing to life of love in the springtime of the year. Granted, it is marital sexual love, but nonetheless, it is a reflection, even in our biblical theology, of the great affection and the great love, the great union between Christ and his bride. So it is appropriate. And you can understand why it fits the Passover narrative to a degree. Ruth is next. Ruth is read during the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. What happens during the Feast of Weeks? What are they celebrating? Yes, what harvest, Kay? Yes, it's the spring. You're not an Iowa farm girl, are you? Uh, it's It's the spring wheat harvest. Okay, so uh, if you're a farmer, you plant your winter wheat, you plant your spring wheat, and you harvest it, and then you plant your summer wheat for the fall. So here's the harvest of the spring wheat crop on the day of Pentecost. And the first fruits, the first sheaves, are offered to the Lord at the temple. Well, why would they read Ruth at Pentecost? 
Or was it at the end of the harvest? Because she comes to Bethlehem during the harvest season and the reapers the reapers are told to leave for her and so she could glean. All right, so in other words, the harvest fits the message of the book of Ruth. In fact, it's a major issue in the narrative development of Ruth's story. So it's very appropriate to read Ruth during the Feast of Weeks. Lamentations now is read on the 9th of Av, which is the month July and August on the Hebrew calendar. And it's read in commemoration of the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem by the Roman general Titus in 70 A.D. Well, why are they commemorating the destruction of the second temple? Well, they're actually killing two birds with one stone. You'll notice that 2 Kings 25 indicates the Babylonians appeared for the destruction of the first Solomonic temple on the 7th of Av, and Jeremiah 52.12 indicates that the Babylonians appeared on the 10th of Av, so that the 9th of Av covers both B.C. and A.D. traditions. They can therefore telescope the destruction of the Solomonic Temple and the second Solomonic Temple or the Herodian Temple by commemorating, by reading the Book of Lamentations on the 9th of Ab and, uh, as I say, uh, killing two birds with one stone. Now, the most, one of the most recent major scholarly works on the fall of Jerusalem is by a Jewish scholar named Oded Lipschitz. And he has meticulously analyzed the information from the Babylonian Chronicles and from the Bible so that he is persuaded that Solomon's temple and Jerusalem was burned in July, at the end of July, actually, in 586 B.C. So this commemoration of the destruction of Jerusalem in Av, that is the period July, August, August, and the ninth of Av, you know, kind of halfway between the seventh day and the tenth of Av, seventh and the tenth of Av, fits the pattern of the original destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. All right, now, uh, the next liturgical use of the Megaloth is Ecclesiastes. And it is read during the Feast of Tabernacles. What does the Feast of Tabernacles commemorate? The Israelites dwelling in the tents in the wilderness. Yes, that's part of it. What else? Is there any agricultural activity being commemorated? It's the fall harvest. It's the Jewish Thanksgiving. We have our Thanksgiving in the fall. It's the Jewish Thanksgiving. It's the end of the harvest season. So they remember how God has blessed their agricultural year through the year. And at the end of the year, they observe the Feast of Tabernacles and have a festival of Thanksgiving. Book of Ecclesiastes is read in order to direct their attention away from the vanity of life to that which endures, namely, fear God and keep his commandments. Finally, the book of Esther is read, obviously, during the feast 
that occurs at the end of the book of Esther, the Feast of Purim, and that is celebrated in March of the calendar year and does not correspond to any particular uh, agricultural imagery. It commemorates the preservation of the Jews from the Persian genocide. All right, so the the five megaloth have an important use even in the contemporary Jewish synagogue and Jewish life. Now, this does not mean that the contemporary Jew believes what it, in the books. These are traditional associations. Judaism is a traditional religion. It's all about, as Retevia says in Fiddler on the Roof, tradition. That's the important thing. Okay? It's not, uh, you know, the precise uh, imagery of the text. There are only... The, the most orthodox, the Hasidic Jews who believe that a Messiah is yet going to come, uh, most, most Jews don't even believe in a personal God, but they do believe in tradition. Very important. And so they keep it alive in this way. It meant in other ways, but this is one way. They keep it alive by reading these uh, minor scrolls. All right, you still with me? Any questions? Yes, Scott. I mean, Jim, do you, do you see any kind of eschatological movement um, in general toward the future coming of the kingdom in, in this kind of order? In the liturgical order? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously there is the cyclical order of the year, which, which, but it's linear for the Jews. So is that going to focus ultimately for the prophets to an eschatological Yes, in, in this sense, your, your comment is uh, is prescient. Um, the calendar year of Judaism is eschatological. It has its own built-in eschatological vector. From Passover to Pentecost, Jesus is the first fruits, obviously, as they're bringing in the first fruits, to Tabernacles, which is the final harvest Jesus goes up to the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles, declares himself the fountain of living water and the light of the world, reminding them of the fullness of the wilderness imagery and obviously pointing to beyond sojourn to permanent settlement. So there is an eschatology and there's an unfolding eschatology to the Jewish festival calendar series. Is that what this liturgy is doing? No, not really. Uh, what this liturgy is doing is hoping that Jerusalem will be rebuilt with a temple and a restoration of a priesthood so that they can once again offer blood sacrifice legally on Mount Zion. But of course, they can't, and they're politically barred from doing so. So some of them do it with chickens in their backyard at Passover time. <clears throat> so my point is, not consciously in the way the megaloth are used, okay? But behind the, the festival pattern, yes, an eschatological vector. Yes, David. This is a way remedial question and one of definition. Do we define the theocracy of Israel as terminating with the Babylonian captivity or with the destruction of um, events of 30 AD to 
I would discuss it both ways. Uh, in terms of definition, I think the theocracy ended with the monarchy of Saul. So theocratic Israel was over. Monarchic Israel dawned. And monarchical Israel ended with the destruction of 586 B.C. The, uh, shall we say, exclamation point upon the end of God's dealing with Israel was 70 A.D. I say dealing with Israel in any redemptive or biblically prophetic way. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> That destruction by the Romans was the staccato uh, exclamation point of Jesus saying to them that that was the end for them. <clears throat> and I think it makes sense in terms of the ratification of the destruction of the Son of God on the cross. So they ratified their own destruction in that destruction. But they're beyond theocracy and they're beyond monarchy. They're an occupied nation. They're under a tyranny. <clears throat> and that tyranny comes to an end in 70 A.D. and they scatter once again. That's my personal conviction on the flow of the history of redemption there. You're certainly welcome to disagree with that. There are many Christians who do so, and that's fine. I don't regard you any less Christian if you disagree, but you just happen to be wrong. That's all. All right. Uh, authorship. There is no liberal who believes that Jeremiah wrote this book. Now, that would not surprise you. Liberal critical commentaries on this book, and there's one which is massive and quite useful. <clears throat> I'll comment on that a little later. <clears throat> but the liberal critical commentaries simply do not even discuss Jeremiah when they discuss authorship. They are certain from their scientific PhDs and their degrees in Old Testament studies, that it was impossible for Jeremiah to have written anything this poetic. Now, of course, those of you who are with me in the Jeremiah series realize that a good portion of the prophecy of Jeremiah is poetry. So to say that Jeremiah is incapable of writing poetry is an insult to the prophet himself, and would then force the liberal scholar to say, well, then the poetry in the book of Jeremiah must have come from somebody else. And, of course, they're not averse to making insane statements like that. <clears throat> but the liberal critical school <clears throat> has now been followed by the conservative evangelical school. I doubt that you will find many evangelical professors of Old Testament in what we would call conservative theological seminaries that believe that Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. In fact, there is no commentary that I read this summer, and I read 12 of them. There is no commentary that argues that Jeremiah wrote it. That is how far the scholarly approach to this book has departed from the ancient tradition of authorship. Now, I mentioned the Septuagint and its endorsement of Jeremiah writing these lamentations in the superscription to the first book, first verse of the, of the Septuagint of Lamentations 1.1. That was also a tradition followed by Josephus, a first century A.D. Jewish historian. 
That was also the tradition followed by the Babylonian Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of rabbinical traditions gathered into a monstrous battery of books in a library, in English translations, huge, massive. And that's the tradition of the Targums. The Jewish Targums are interpretations out of the scribal schools of Judaism in which they explain books of the Bible. And the Targum on Lamentations associates this book with Jeremiah, as does the Talmud, Talmud, as does the, as does Josephus, as does the Jewish school in Alexandria, which translated Lamentations into Greek. The early Christian church and church fathers accepted the testimony of that Jewish tradition. They also accepted the testimony of the fact that the book was next to Jeremiah in the Septuagint and ultimately in the Vulgate. Does that prove that Jeremiah wrote it? <clears throat> no, because Jeremiah's name isn't attached to the book. In other words, we do not have a signed autographer <clears throat> of Lamentations which has Jeremiah of Jerusalem at the bottom of the page or at the top of the page. So, <clears throat> this uh, discussion is, in a sense, an argument from silence. That is, we actually don't have the author's name in the book. Well, when that happens, is it possible for us to trust historical tradition? Yes, <clears throat> though we, we must also admit that we haven't got an ironclad case, at least not yet. When I'm done, we'll have an ironclad case. <laughs> I'm being slightly facetious, but nonetheless, <clears throat> what I'm persuaded of as I have worked through the Hebrew over the summer is that the poetry of this book is similar to the poetry of one other book, at least in respect to phrases, to vocabulary. Some of the vocabulary is unique to this book and one other book, to thematic imagery, and also to the basic motif of the whole work. And that other book is the book of Jeremiah. In fact, there are no correspondences to the degree of quantity of correspondence between Lamentations and any other book of the Old Testament. There is only one book that you could point to that says, yes, <clears throat> that Hebrew word appears in Lamentations and in Jeremiah and doesn't appear anywhere else. That Hebrew phrase appears in Lamentations and in Jeremiah and doesn't appear anywhere else. That expression of imagery appears in Lamentations and Jeremiah and does not appear the same way in, anywhere, in any other book. Who else do we have who would qualify then as an author of what looks like this is that and that is this? I submit to you that Jeremiah fits that answer perfectly. And I'm going to proceed on the basis of the fact that there is no other Hebrew uh, <clears throat> vocabulary, Hebrew document, Hebrew narrative, Hebrew poetry that matches the timbre of Lamentations than the book of Jeremiah and vice versa. There is no other book that completes the epilogue 
of the book of Jeremiah than the book of Lamentations. QED. Trust the tradition in this case. I think from from the internal and external evidence of the Hebrew and of the narrative, I think that that is a that that case is closed. But I am definitely a minority, even amongst evangelicals. I acknowledge it, but I've been a minority before, and I'm used to it. Okay, we'll take our break. Oh yes, Mark. No, they do not. <clears throat> they, they, they say it comes out of the post-exilic period. And why would they argue that it's post-exilic? Uh, meaning that it comes <clears throat> 400, 300 B.C.? Why would they say that? <clears throat> they say that it is a, uh, <clears throat> a poetic rendition of looking back at the sad state of Jerusalem after the Babylonian destruction. But it is post hoc propter hoc. It is after the fact, long after the fact. And so as they believe most of the Old Testament is written in that post-exilic period, they believe most all the books of Moses are written in the post-exilic period. Moses didn't write them, according to the critical scholars. This was a group of Jewish scribes who wanted to create the myth or the legend of Moses in the 15th century B.C. and invented him as a great kind of lawgiver, like the Babylonian Hammurabi of the second millennium B.C., and then composed the books of Moses, pushed them back into the ancient history in order to make the religion of Israel look as if it had developed by evolutionary style to its peak by the time of the, of the post-Babylonian exile in Persia. So it's, it's not just Lamentations, okay? It's parts of other books of the Bible. The last ten chapters of Isaiah, they call Trito-Isaiah because it couldn't have been written by Isaiah before the destruction of the northern kingdom of, Assyria, of Israel by Assyria. It couldn't have been written before the destruction of Jerusalem. It had to be written after the fact because it talks about Jerusalem being rebuilt. So no prophet could predict that. You may understand that the critical liberals don't believe in supernatural revelation. They don't believe that God can, can tell ahead of time. They don't believe God can tell anything anyway because all the books of the Bible are written by men. They're not written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're written by people. It, it is, but it's a subtle attempt that most uh, most university students never pick up because, of course, their professors are smart. They've all got PhDs, right? So they ought to know what they're talking about. And they say Moses didn't exist, and Moses didn't exist because he's got a PhD in Old Testament study. <coughs> Excuse me. Go ahead, David. <coughs> As I uh, vaguely remember my biblical history, Jeremiah was after the fall of Jerusalem was sometime thereafter was kidnapped and taken to Egypt. My question is, do we have any idea when he wrote Lamentations? Was it before he was taken down to Egypt? We do not, but my opinion is that it was written very close to the destruction of the city itself. That's my opinion from within the book of Lamentations. You're right, we do not know uh, when he was taken down, it was shortly after the death of Gedaliah, the governor that uh, became governor of Jerusalem after the destruction. And he was kidnapped, uh, and then he disappears completely from the record. Yes, Randy? 
That word timbre, timbre was it? What's that mean? Timbre, it means kind of tone. T-I-M-B-R-E, it's in your outline. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good French word. Art smiling. Refers to a kind of style of music or a tone of music, and so it can be taken over into a narrative or a literary character quality. Well, you, you all look like you need a snack, so uh, stretch your legs, get some oxygen, grab a snack, be back in five. This will be the most challenging part of our evening, partly because of the unfamiliarity of the Hebrew to you, but for the sake of illustrating the marvelous form of divine inspiration here, I want you to see it, and I'll try to step step you through it in a way in which you can grasp some of it. The Book of Lamentations is a magnificent piece of poetic literature. Divine inspiration heightens the poetic genius of Jeremiah, the author, to an extent unprecedented in the Old Testament. There is no other book like it. The closest to the genius of this book is Psalm 119, but even it pales in comparison with, the what, with what the author has done here. Now, I have given you copies of part of the Hebrew text, and I have done that in order to show you the acrostic feature of the Hebrew passage. Now, an acrostic is a piece of literature which follows the alphabet from beginning to end, or from A to Z, so to speak, in English. Here, the acrostic follows the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, from Aleph to Tav. So there are fewer letters than our English, 26, but nonetheless, those letters are the whole alphabet of the language. And you will immediately notice that chapter 1 of Lamentations has 22 verses. That fits the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You also notice that chapter 2 has 22 verses. Once again, that fits the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 4 has 22 verses. That also fits the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 5 has 22 verses, but there's a difference, and we'll look at that in a moment. We skipped over chapter 3. Chapter 3 has 66 verses, which is three times 22, the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Something really creatively majestic is going on here. This is not just an accident. This is well planned out by Jeremiah as the authorial poet, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit augments and increases that majestic literary paradigm. So let's begin with the first chapter, 
and the first sheet of Hebrew in your packet, which has Thraney on the lower left hand, lower right hand side, and Eka in big letters, and also Eka before or just after verse 1. Now, you will notice that the letter that begins the word Eka, and you read Hebrew from left to right, not from right to left. So you have to learn to read Hebrew backwards. <clears throat> Actually, you're reading it forwards, but you're not reading the way you've been trained to read words on a page. So <clears throat> the first word, the first letter in the word is the word that comes next to the one, and that's the Aleph, which is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, as you go to verse 2, you'll notice the first letter next to the number 2 is the base. That's the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So first letter in verse 1, second letter in verse 2, verse 3 <clears throat> on the next page. The, <clears throat> the letter next to the 3 is called Gimel, and that's the third letter in the Hebrew alphabet. You're beginning to see the pattern. Verse 4, the letter next to the 4 is Daleth, which is the fourth word of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 5 is Haith. Verse 6 is Vav or Wow. Verse 7 is Zion. And so on we go through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet in chapter 1. Though I didn't show you all of them, I will show you all of them when we look at chapter 4. <clears throat> now, another thing to notice. <clears throat> you will notice as we've looked at chapter 1 that the verses are lined out in terms of three lines per verse. You can see that better at verse 3, 4, and 5 following. You'll notice that the Hebrew is composed of bicolas, that is, one line consists of two phrases, and there are three bicolas per verse. So there are three lines of bicola in the original Hebrew, and you can see them in each of those verses, 1 through 22 in chapter 1. So, chapter 1 is an acrostic from Aleph to Tav, but it's an acrostic of 22 verses that have three lines per verse. How many lines altogether do we have? We have 66 lines in chapter 1. All right, now chapter 2 is a repeat of this same pattern, okay? I didn't give you a copy of chapter 2 because it follows the very same pattern that you see in this sheet, which gives you the pattern of chapter 1. <clears throat> so chapter 2 is also 22 verses in acrostic style, Aleph to Tav, with three lines per verse, so that we have a total, again, of 66 lines. Now, if you go to the next sheet of your Hebrew outline or your Hebrew pages, you have chapter 3, part of chapter 3. Now, as you look at the right-hand side of the page from 1, 2, 3 on down, do you see anything? Does anything jump out to your eye as you look down the first letter right down that right-hand side of the page. Three verses, the same letter. Yes. <laughs> the verses, each three verses, that is, in a row, have the same initial letter. 
So we have three Aleph lines, one to three. We have three Beth lines, four to six. We have three Gimel lines, seven to nine, and so on through the Hebrew alphabet. So chapter three has 22 letters, but how many verses? It has 66 verses, and how many lines per section of the alphabet? Three per section, which gives us how many total lines in chapter 3? 198. Very good. Yes. This is, this is elementary multiplication. Right now, notice, as you look down there, isn't that amazing? Even your eye can see it. Each line, for three lines, begins with the same initial letter. Can you imagine writing an English poem that way? Try it. Try it. Okay? But he does it through 198 lines. This is poetic genius. It's not just inspired poetic genius. It's poetic genius. All right, now that brings us to chapter 4. <clears throat> and actually, if you look at chapter 4 and the next sheet... Chapter, which has chapter 5 on the upper right-hand side, you can see all 22 verses of chapter 4. And here you can see the whole acrostic. You can see from 4.1 where you see the Aleph to 4.22 on the next page where you see the little dot in what looks like, like a kind of uh, tent, okay, with a flat top, and that's the Tav. So you can see from Aleph to Tav all the way through the alphabet as you progress from verse 1 to 22. So there you, there you get to see the whole Hebrew alphabet, which is present in chapters 1 and chapter 2. So chapter 4, like chapter 1 and 2, has 22 verses. But as you look at the form of those 22 verses, what do you notice? How many lines do you have per verse? Two. You have two lines per verse. You don't have three lines per verse as you had in chapters one and two. So we have the full acrostic in chapter four, Aleph to Tov, as we did in chapters one and two. But instead of having three lines per vowel or per consonant, we have two lines per consonant or, or letter of the alphabet, which gives us a total of how many? 44. Very good. You're doing your math assignment very well. All right, now let's turn completely to chapter 5, which follows on your last sheet. And you can see the 22 verses on the two pages, right side and left. What do you notice as you examine the first letter in each of those verses from 1 to 22? What had you seen in the first letters from 1 to 22 in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4, and even in chapter 3? You saw the what? You saw the acrostic, didn't you? You saw the acrostic form. 
Do you see an acrostic form in chapter 5? There is no acrostic in chapter 5. He breaks his pattern in chapter 2, chapter 5. <clears throat> chapter 1, acrostic. Chapter 2, acrostic. Chapter 3, magnificent acrostic. Chapter 4, acrostic. Chapter 5, no acrostic. Ah, oh, see, somebody else must have written it, a later editor. Oh, the critics love that garbage. Okay, chapter 5 has 22 verses. How many lines? One line per consonant, poor, poor, uh, <clears throat> poor letter of the alphabet. Okay. Now, our math scholars, homeschool math scholars, this plus this plus this plus this equals what? 198. What's at the center of the poem? Chapter 3, which has 198 lines. He balances then the rest of the acrostic features of his poem by tallying symmetrically and exactly the same number of total lines in 1, 2, 4, and 5 as per present in chapter 3. It is a symmetry of perfection. Even though that last chapter has no acrostic feature, even though it appears as if he breaks his pattern, he nonetheless retains the symmetry of numeric line. The capstone or keystone chapter, that is, the hinge of the book, chapter 3, is equal to the sum of its parts. Jeremiah precedes Euclidean geometry. <laughs> you just pause for a moment to soak that in. You think about the planning and the writing and the ordering of such a magnificent work that it perfectly works out this way. Yes, I don't minimize the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I want you also to marvel at the genius of the author. This is magnificent rhetorical, literary, poetic, narrative style. All right, now, <clears throat> why does he diminish the lines from 3 to 2 to 1 on the other side of the capstone or the queen chapter, the third chapter. Why does he do it? Well, we're going to examine that question in detail, but right now we want to just observe that this is moving this way, this is moving this way, this is moving this way, and this is moving that way. We have come to the peak or apex of the poem in chapter 3. We decline to the end of the poem in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we place something in the poem that has not appeared before.
we remove the acrostic and we remove the multiple lines. Why? Why? Because he's a genius, that's why. So I'll tantalize you with that as we work towards chapter 5. But I have suggested in my comments in your outline tonight what is the broad explanation behind it. Randy, you have a question. Why ascribe the genius of the symmetry to Jeremiah instead of the Holy Spirit? Well, because the man has genius. He has gifts that God used. He has poetic gifts that God enhanced by the Holy, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He learned how to think in terms of idiomatic and symmetrical Hebrew idiom. He may have gone to a scribal school. He may have been taught. He was close enough to Jerusalem where he was born in Anatoth to have been influenced by those schools. In other words, there's a great deal of learning involved here. And that learning is enhanced by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Shakespeare has wonderful gifts. John Donne, John Milton, they have wonderful poetic gifts. They don't have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, they have these gifts, which are part of their nature, their character, their background, their study, etc. They're learning what God had given them. That is enhanced. Jeremiah had that. It is enhanced here by the Holy Spirit so that this is more magnificent than Shakespeare, Milton, or John Donne. Uh, no, I'm not, denying, I'm not denying that. I'm just urging you to, to marvel at the natural gifts and the Holy Spirit endowed gifts. Scott. Can we say it another way? As we did in Jeremiah, it's the incarnation of the life of God in the writer as he's writing to this inspiration. That's very good. Yes. David? <coughs> I'm going to take a wild guess here. Uh, the fifth chapter doesn't have an acrostic because the acrostic is a very orderly presentation and the destruction of Jerusalem left it very disorderly. I like what you said, David. Uh, you're, you're, you're not far from the kingdom on that statement. <laughs> very good. Uh, yes, John. So my son was asking about verse 7 in chapter 1. There appeared to be four lines. Yes, that is correct. There is a variation in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. There are two chapters which have more than three lines. Why they are there, I do not know. They are an exception to the rule. They are an exception to truth the rule. But you're right to notice it. I didn't want to hide that from you, but I was going to address it when we come to the details of the chapter. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to go on right now, and I'll be glad to entertain anything after the 9 o'clock hour. But I want to make a comment about the commentaries and then the biblical theological paradigm. A number of you through these series, and these series are available on the Internet. They're free. All you have to do is go to the Northwest Theological Seminary website and dial them up, and you can listen to them and actually print off the handouts they're in PDF form, so 
<clears throat> there are generally handouts with every series we've done. Uh, we just finished Philemon last spring. We've done Jude. We've done Hebrews. We've done Jeremiah. We've done the life of David. We've, <clears throat> uh, we've done uh, Ruth. We've done Song of Solomon. There's a lot, Gospel of John. There's a lot out there that is available to you. Uh, through the audios of the podcast or through you know, just listen to it on your computer, on your iPad or on your iPhone or whatever device you have. Anyway, it's there for your edification. And some of you uh, want to use a commentary as uh, we go along in these studies. And I commend you for that. Uh, it's certainly a worthy goal and uh, there are useful commentaries here. And so I want to comment on two of the ones that I think are most helpful to you as a lay audience. The best evangelical commentary is by Paul House in the Word Commentary series. It's bound up with the Song of Solomon. So there are two books of the Bible in this one volume. So two commentaries on two books of the Bible. So you get two for one. I'm not so high on the commentary on Song of Solomon in that series uh, for for other reasons, I'm not going to go into that right now. Uh, <clears throat> but nonetheless, I am high on Paul House and anything he has done. He actually did a book on Zephaniah, which I have a great deal of, of appreciation for. We did Zephaniah in this series. <clears throat> uh, Paul House uh, actually was trained in literature and then moved into theology, taught at Taylor University in Indiana for a while. He's now at a seminary in the South, and I can't remember exactly what it is. But nonetheless... <clears throat> This is the best evangelical commentary on Lamentations. It's not perfect, but it is the most helpful and it is the most moderate in terms of its critical approach. He does not believe that Jeremiah wrote the book, but nonetheless he believes the book is authentic with respect to the historicity of the fall of Jerusalem and the, uh, the aftermath thereof. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> there is an older commentary in the InterVarsity Tyndall series by R.K. Harrison, the late R.K. Harrison, a professor of Old Testament at uh, Wycliffe, I think, in uh, Toronto, Canada. Uh, wrote a huge introduction to the Old Testament, which is a magnificent piece of work, uh, over 1,200 pages long. Uh, R.K. Harrison was a, a very fine evangelical scholar, and he wrote in his, uh, con- he wrote Jeremiah and Lamentations in that old Tyndall series. So, if you picked up uh, the Tyndall-Jeremiah commentary when we were doing that, the old Tyndall by Harrison, then you have Lamentations in the back of that volume. It's too brief. It's unfortunately very disappointing because it's too short. But nonetheless, it is more reliable than the revised Tyndall version, which has been written by a woman, and I'm uh, uh, I'm not denigrating the woman, but... It's a terrible piece of work. It is just not a good piece of work. So I would not recommend the revised Tyndall. In fact, I won't recommend many of the revised Tyndalls. They're becoming too too liberal and too critical because, of course, evangelicalism has to keep attenuating itself to the times. Nonetheless, um, if if you want the more reliable commentary, uh, then you want the old Tyndall by R.K. Harrison. Now, there is a monster critical commentary by Johann Renkema. No relationship to Mark Renkema, except the name. A Dutch scholar. 900 plus pages, which I worked through this summer as well. 
It really is uh, magnificent in some ways, but it is wrong-headed in many ways. And so it is not a commentary which I would recommend to a lay audience and is only a commentary I would recommend to a, a trained pastor or a trained student who knows how to handle the critical uh, material and the unbelieving material that is there. However, with respect to certain themes, certain word studies, certain motifs, he can be uh, he can be helpful and he can prod uh, prod your mind, etc. All right, so those those are the the commentary options. Uh, not required that you buy a commentary, but if you want a commentary to read alongside as you work through the chapters with me, you're certainly welcome to do that. <clears throat> How do we look at this book from the standpoint of uh, Vossian biblical theology? Well, we first of all observe the genre of the book. This is, no, this is narrative poetic art. I've already told you that I'm going to approach the book from the standpoint of narrative analysis. But this is narrative poetic art. <clears throat> and this story unfolds through two voices, through two speakers. The one voice is the voice of the poet himself, whom I believe is Jeremiah. The other voice is the voice of personified Jerusalem. It is the city herself speaking. She calls herself daughter of Zion. She calls herself Zion. She calls herself daughter of Jerusalem. She's been called in the literature Lady Jerusalem. That's fine. But she is speaking <clears throat> alongside Jeremiah himself. Now, the narrative style is the narrative of what is observed. The poet narrates what he observes. He narrates what he experiences. He narrates what he mirrors. This is mimetic poetry. This is mirror relation mimesis, which means that the city is the other side of the mirror. The city narrates the story she observes. The city narrates the story that she experiences. The city narrates the story that she echoes from the mirror of the poet and vice versa. Narrative interface. Rippling narrative interface as we move through the two voices of the poets in the drama. Well, the narratives together combine to show us the story or the narrative God reveals. His story attached to Jeremiah's story, attached to Jerusalem's story. His story <clears throat> attached to the ultimate and eschatological story, the eschatological Narrative. That is the key to Vossian biblical theology. Any biblical theology which claims to be Vossian and neglects the eschatological vector is neither Vossian nor biblical theological. That is the defining identity of what it means to be a Vossian biblical theologian. That's what I am. I am unapologetic for it, though I suffer for it. I am a Vossian eschatological 
biblical theologian. Well, what does that mean with respect to Jeremiah? It means that the eschatological poet stands behind the the prophetic poet. It means that the eschatological Jerusalem stands behind the historical Jerusalem. It means that through this drama poetically expressed, through this narrative poetically described, through this interface between poet and city, city and poet, through this mutual interface, we see the eschatological prophet, the eschatological Jeremiah, the eschatological city, the eschatological Jerusalem. To not see that is to refuse Luke chapter 24. All of the law and the prophets and the writings, Jesus says, speak of me. And that includes the ketubim, the writings. Jesus is referring to the ketubim when he uses that word. He is referring to lamentations amongst the writings of the minor scrolls. Lamentations is a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ when Matthew chapter 16 was supposed to be Jeremiah come back from the dead. Ah. Ah. And does this erstwhile Jeremiah Jesus of Nazareth weep over Lady Jerusalem? He does indeed. And do the scorners and mockers that pass through that city spit upon him as they spit upon the inhabitants of daughter Jerusalem in 586 B.C.? Is it nothing to you? All you who pass by, behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Book of Lamentations is an eschatological anticipation. It is an eschatological interface 600 years before the ultimate eschatological expression. Namely, the Son of God coming to bear the sorrows of a judged and destroyed people of God and to bring them out of that sorrow into a city where they weep no more, neither are there any more lamentations in the Jerusalem which is above. We will keep our eyes upon Jesus as we go chapter by chapter through this book because he is the fullness of it. And apart from him, we are carcasses in a dead and dying civilization. Let's pray, and then I'll take any questions that you may have as we depart.
Father, we thank you for the gift of great wisdom and skill and artistry and poetic genius in your servants, the prophets. We particularly thank you for Jeremiah's skill and for how we've seen a small part of that this evening magnify your name and praise you for giving such wondrous gifts to men. We thank you, O Lord, for this book, sorrowful though its message may be. We realize that sorrow is a part of the life of the people of God. In this case, a tragic sorrow, for they brought it upon themselves by their willful and sinful rebellion against your word and against your threats of judgment. We know that judgment threatens us. We know that we deserve the consequence of our rebellion and sin. But we know Jesus Christ, who has borne our sorrows and carried our griefs. And we know that he sits at your right hand in the Jerusalem above, where there is no more death, and no more sorrow, and no more crying. So we bless you for this book and for him, and we ask you to help us as we are drawn into the drama of identification with him through this book. And so in the name of Christ Jesus, your son, the suffering, sorrowful servant, and prophet of prophets, we pray, amen. Did you have any other questions that you wanted to pose? Uh, Scott, you had your hand up, and then Randy? That is correct. Pay and iron are reversed. And once again, I do not know why, and nobody else does either. <laughs> it's, no, probably not. Probably not. Uh, he, he, he doesn't do it in chapter 1, but he does it in chapter 2 and chapter 4. Randy? Handles Messiah, Isaiah 53 only, or Lamentations as well? Yes, some from Lamentations. Yes. Same time, same station next week.